welcome to Master the Start, a podcast for young professionals where we interview business experts on how you can master the start of your life and business. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Master the Start, sponsored by GoMahi.com and with your host, Bobby Mason. We have an awesome interview coming up for you today, and this week, we're super excited to introduce Chuck Hengel to the show. Chuck is the founder and leader of Marketing Architects, an all-in-one TV advertisement agency handling billions of dollars in revenue. For 23 years, he has helped clients put together marketing campaigns, and here, on episode 41 of Master the Start, we'll learn the secrets to successfully marketing your product as well as yourself. Everyone, welcome to the Master Art Podcast. We have Chuck on our show, the one and only from Marketing Architects. This is actually our second time doing this because we just had all of our systems fail on us. So hopefully Chuck can say all this stuff with the same level of excitement. <laughs> but I think just to start out like we did last time, who are you? And maybe just tell us a little bit about Marketing Architects and then we can kind of dive in again and I'll ask a little different question so we don't have to do the same thing over again. Yeah, well, it usually takes me a few things to get anything right. So it's only going to get better, Bobby. So no worries <laughs> at all. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really great question. Who am I? Um, I? I was helped years ago answering that question by being encouraged as an entrepreneur not to really answer that in any one way. And that's the idea that we all have so many roles that we fill in our lives that if you want to run a successful company, the first thing you need to do is say, well, what are all the roles outside of work that are going to also define me? And that means maybe I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm a mother, I'm a community leader. It can be any number of roles and to not have specific goals and time spent on all those can really be hurt when you launch a business because it can be an all-consuming kind of thing. So for me, my family, my three kids, my wife, those that's my true north. I do this for them. And I make sure that I have things that I'm reaching towards in all the other aspects of my life as well. Now, relative to work, the last 23 years, I've been an entrepreneur at the same company, which is really rare. I'm the founder of Marketing Architects. We've had a really nice run. I started out as a single entrepreneur in an office and was able to build an amazing team. And we've really been at it for a long time. And I'm only here because I still feel like I can operate like an entrepreneur would. Every year, we, we feel like we start from scratch. We have to figure out how we're going to compete, how we're going to evolve, how we're going to change in an industry that's going through a lot of change. So I still love what I'm doing and I still get to do the kinds of things an entrepreneur does, even though we've reached a lot more size and scale today that I'm really proud of. Sweet. So like I was saying when we did this the first time around, mastering the start of business, that's that's kind of what we focus on. We focus on mastering your business careers at the beginning. and. People don't know this. I mean, I'd assume most people don't know this. You were one of the youngest partners at a nation at the nation's premier print agency. So you're at it's Novus, right? Is that how you say it? Right. Novus Print Media is its name today. Yes. Yeah. So it, how do you become the youngest partner at a super young age? And then we'll kind of dive into your decision to leave a little later in your career. Yeah, great question. It's a long time ago, but it's um, a great memory of how how it all came about. Certainly, you have to credit some bit of good timing and luck to anything that happens like that. But at the time, um, I actually had accepted an offer to a different company at the same time I was interviewing with Novus. And um, then a couple of days later, I got an offer from Novus, and it was for a lot less money. But I just had a feeling that Novus was going to go somewhere further than the company I had said yes to. So I called the other company back and turned down the offer I had accepted. They weren't too happy about that. But ultimately, it turned out to be a great decision. And it took some personal risk on my part to walk away from a lot more compensation. But um, it ended up being the right decision. And so then I was there at a very young age. And the company really just took off. It had just an amazing leader and founder that set the tone for what that company was trying to accomplish. I learned a ton from that person. And 
So we just went on a growth tear. And, and since I was there early, the company grew and needed people to lead things. And I was there to raise my hand and take on responsibilities that I probably wouldn't have had available to me at a more sub substantial or an older firm and took advantage of those and succeeded at those. And, and, and the company continued to grow to become much further north of 100 million in revenue from almost zero when I started. So it was a really exciting time to be a part of something like that. That's super cool. Did you go to Novus straight out of college? I didn't. Um, I had my first job at a company in town called Fingerhut. I was a statistician. I was there a year and a half. And then I decided I was going to scratch my entrepreneurial itch. And I left to launch my first attempt on my own at business and spent a couple of years doing that. It ultimately failed and I needed to get back into the workplace. Um, I always wanted to be out on my own. Um, but Novus really gave me the feel like I almost was that. It was such an entrepreneurial place and I had so much responsibility that it was just a great match for me. So what, well, the big thing is, what was it like being young, yet the, a part of upper management? Like, was it different being a younger individual as a part of upper management? Did people look at you differently? Did you feel like you had to prove yourself differently or no? I think so. I think it can be a challenge where the, the kind of decisions we were having to make for the scale of company we had become, there's a lot of exposure to have a young and experienced team making those decisions. At the same time, we were young and inexperienced, so we had no fear. We were going for big ideas and trying to make big things happen. Um, I would say the one thing the company did really well, though, is they had a lot of senior mentors that gave this company a real rudder. So for example, we had a real senior attorney that was providing great legal advice. We had a great accountant. They had um, and other senior resources in marketing that, that we tapped into. So I felt like we really were surrounded by some amazing advisors and mentors uh, that provided some guidance and help to us. While at the same time, we weren't held back by preconceived ways of doing things or a team that had been in place a long time. So it ended up being just the perfect combination of all elements to succeed. I think um, even though that you're young, um, you're able to do big things, but not necessarily make the kinds of mistakes you'd make if you were totally on your own. Cool. So what was the moment? I mean, was there one specific moment where you were like, it's time for me to leave Novus. It's time for me to do my own thing. What was the buildup to that point? Yeah, there, there actually was a moment where I decided it was time to leave. And that was we were at an executive retreat and we had a strong management team and we were at this retreat for three days. And it was the middle of day two where I was being pushed in a way to go in a direction I just did not believe in. There was nothing wrong with the direction. I just felt like I couldn't be successful going in that direction for the part of the business I ran. And I just decided, you know, it is probably time if I have this strong of an idea of how things should be run. The only true way to be able to make all your own decisions is to do your own thing. And that that was the moment I said, you know, maybe it's time to negotiate an exit from this company, which I eventually then did. That's super cool. So did you just straight up and I'm just thinking about it from the perspective of a a student of business, whether that student of business is a 20-year-old or a 40-year-old, did you start working on marketing architects before you left or did you just straight up leave and go in full-time and give it your all? Yeah, I, I have a funny perspective on that to some, and that is I just did not work on anything that would come next after Novus. While I was there, I, I left just cold turkey. I had no idea of what I was going to do, but I felt like I wanted to be 100% in on the next thing. So I didn't lower my risk of starting something by kind of getting started before I left. And so then I was out on my own. Now, I was also married at this point, and we already had our first child. And so my wife was getting a little nervous a few months into this. I had written a number of business plans. And I was vetting those and talking to some of the mentors that I had, and none of them were quite right for the next thing I was going to hang as my shingle. And one day my wife was due, and it was two weeks away from her due date. She walks into my den looking very pregnant. She sits down. She's like, well, what are you going to do next? And I said, I don't know yet. 
And she had been involved as also an advisor to me through these different business ideas. And she said, why don't you just do what you're good at? And I'm like, what do you think I'm good at? She says, you're really good in this agency world. Why don't you start another agency? And I said, you know, I really want to move on and do something different. She said, but if you thought about that in, in the context of what you're good at, and I believe you really loved your prior experience. And, she, and I said, you know, you're right. And I came up with the idea of marketing architects that afternoon and, and actually began the process of launching it within the next couple of days after I written a plan. And we were live within a couple of months after that sit down with her after our second daughter was born. Um, so the stakes were high to succeed in this because of a young family and mouths to feed. But it was just something that I really wanted to do. And I felt like I really looked at all my options ultimately. Thank goodness for my wife who gave me the idea that ultimately became marketing architects. <laughs> That's a pretty crazy story. That sounds a little uh, nerve wracking, but I think before we actually dive into marketing architects, and even this is for better clarity for me, who's just a novice that doesn't know anything about marketing for the most part and advertising, what exactly is marketing architects? And what do you think just straight out of the gate, what do you think made you significantly different than other marketing companies or marketing agencies, advertising agencies? Yeah, I believe if you look it up, there's well north of 30,000 companies that call themselves an agency. Um, there's a smaller number of people that maybe do television. Um, and that's what we're focused on. We're a TV agency. But we really built a differentiated way of providing services to our clients. Our big differentiator was figuring out what's the overall equation required for success in television and how do you optimize that equation? And we figured out it was more than just the creative. It was more than just the media. It was more than just the analytics. And it's just more than the conversion process. It was all of that. And we looked at that in depth and figured out that we could find a way to invest in things that would normally cost a lot of money at other shops and that would give us an advantage right out of the gates where people are always looking for their marketing dollar to go further. They're always afraid to try things that are maybe risky from a new channel perspective. And that investment model allowed us to become very attractive to companies that were very smart with their model. Um, they liked the fact that we had skin in the game. They liked the fact that we were in a net loss position on most accounts for upwards of a year before we started to turn a profit. So we took a really long-term view and ultimately, that approach built a really premier kind of client list of people that have partnered with us to drive revenue and build their brand through the television channel. You just brought up having skin in the game. So I think this is a good time for me to ask you this question. Why in the world, and I was just looking through the website and everything like that, why in the world do you invest your own money into every single pilot? How does that even work, I guess? You know, that actually was a very practical decision that we ar ar arrived at. We used to charge for all these services when we first launched, but what we found was that there are just things that have to be in place that people would want want to buy from us. There's a certain quality of TV spot that has to be produced. There's a certain level of investment in the digital ecosystem that a company has in place, their website, how they convert their buyer interest to actual customers. There's there's a cost to the analytic models that now need to be in place to measure everything. And so over time, we had a lower success rate than we felt we should have because customers were like, well, I know you want to do two TV spots to test both of them, but we'll just give us your best shot and we'll try that. Well, that just flies in the face of the classic need to do A-B testing. And so we made a crazy decision at one point. We said, you know what, what if we invested in these things and we found a way to be more cost effective. So we ended up not having to invest as much as we thought we had to, but that we'd pay for this on behalf of our clients. And then would they stick around longer because the performance was better? And that's exactly what occurred. So in our business, the average tenure of an agency is maybe only two or three years. And we averaged far, far longer than that because our, our campaigns are actually performing. So yeah, there is an upfront cost to it and the margins can be impacted somewhat, but at the same time, when you have long-term clients, we're far more profitable with that kind of client mix than running an agency where it's all pay for services as you go. 
So I don't know much at all about whether it's writing a pilot or coming up with a TV campaign. Can you just go a little more in depth into what that looks like? Like if I'm a company coming to you to do some type of TV promotions, where do I even start and how long is a process? Good question. Um, So we look for people that already have some assumption for growth in place and some way that they're already growing their company. Television is usually not the best place to launch a business. So for example, really common for us is somebody's maybe been very successful in social media. Maybe they found a way to market the product on Facebook and Instagram and that's happening and they're growing their company and they're acquiring customers and they're scaling their revenue. So um, we're looking for that that type of business. But then at some point, every company to continue to scale their business is likely going to outgrow their first assumption they had in place for growth. Uh, or maybe they launched this purely with a sales team and now that sales team can't bring in enough business and they're looking at marketing to do that. So that's when a company like Marketing Architects comes into play where you're starting to vet and look at other channels. And now the question becomes more sophisticated. What's the right mix of all my marketing activity that needs to be in place for to build the best brand that we can build, to have the most awareness in the marketplace and to drive the most immediate business from our advertising? So what we hold ourselves out is really expert in the television channel. And a lot of companies will reach a point where maybe they're a good fit for that type of advertising. So then if all of that's in place, we have our own unique way of doing TV. And it typically starts stepping back and really thinking at a very high level, what objective or milestone are you even trying to reach? That's the clearest way we can start a TV campaign. Not every company has an objective that television can help reach. But let's say the goal is to accelerate sales and the product is a mass market product that we think fits TV. um, And there's some cash flow that they can invest in a new campaign. Well, we can start to answer those kinds of questions to take that on. And then we typically start with some kind of a creative assignment. Most people haven't created the clarity and message that they need to be on television. So we typically are involved in some relook at the brand and do they have to clarify their message, um, build a tagline, what's their core value proposition that we're going to bring into TV. Um, there's an advantage in t- a, a channel like television. It's a short form media. So you can't ramble on and on with your message. So we'll typically go through a process there. Then there's a media planning process we'll take a client through. One of the more intense areas is to look at how are you going to even convert interest in your company into real orders? Do you have the proper e-commerce engine on your website? If people get there, do you know how to retarget them and a variety of questions like that? And then ultimately, how do we measure and optimize all of these things? The fact that all of those capabilities are under one roof where typically those are marshaled out to two or three or sometimes even four different agencies gives us an advantage where we all can orchestrate and look at the entire holistic campaign from a single perspective. And we found it's made it more likely for us to reach an objective of growth or increasing market share or improving client margins, all the kinds of things that TV can have an impact on. The fact that it's all integrated here, we can work seamlessly to help achieve that. So it's definitely not a channel for a startup per se. It's TV is a better channel for someone that's maybe been out in business a year or two, maybe longer. Um, But when it's a good fit for you, it's still a powerful way then to take your company to the next level. Really good stuff. I I really like that because I really don't know a lot about that world. So when it comes to, I don't know, like creating advertisements, like if they were coming to you, let's say I'm a new company, not a new company, I guess, because you just said it wouldn't be perfect for a startup. But how big of a company would I need to be to actually start looking into TV advertising? Like, are we talking companies that are doing $10 million or can companies that are doing a half a million dollars still get into that TV world? Like, is it a super expensive industry? Yeah. So it's really, it's really evolving. I think TV has traditionally been a place where larger brands play. Maybe they have $50 million or more in revenue. We certainly have clients that do billions of dollars in revenue that are really good fit for TVs. But where it's changing is Um, Television is now starting to be disconnected from just the standard TV set. It's called over-the-top TV, where you can get a subscription to Hulu, for example, and now you can target users on a very small targeted basis. And so maybe you can spend $30,000, $40,000, $50,000 
and find an entry point for TV where maybe I'm a smaller brand, maybe I've done my first million in revenue and I want to invest some money in testing some of these um, new TV platforms that are out there. So the entry point has, has definitely decreased. Um, our advice for people still though is to use some of the more nimble channels um, that are available to you in the digital ecosystem, be that social media or display advertising, of course, Google search. Um, you should be able to find better scale there early on than television because you can have tighter control, you can run smaller experiments, and you can manage it a little more efficiently than television's designed to be run. I know a bigger trend in TV tech and advertising right now is addressable ads. And I think I understand what it is. I think it's essentially TV ads that can be targeted to specific households, right? Exactly. So could you go into that a little more? And is that a trend that's going to become more and more, I mean, just a much more common thing in the future? Yeah, I think as people have noticed now, TVs have become a lot more like computers. And if you look at the inside of the TV, that's basically what's there. There's uh, an ability for uh, a cable provider to take some level of control over your TV where they, they know now who you are based on your subscription package and they can serve you an individualized ad to you or your household. And so that's gaining traction in the industry. And the consumer does need to opt in for that when they're typically setting up their TV. Um, and that's continuing to evolve. TV from maybe just a mass media to one that can really be hyper-focused and targeted to, to you as an individual. And those are all really positive trends for TV. Yeah, so I definitely see that as a positive trend. What, what are some other big trends that you're kind of diving into or looking into? Because, you know, when we first started talking, you were talking about how you guys are almost 100 employees, but you guys all have that entrepreneurial spirit. You're always focused on innovation. What are you looking at in the industry right now? What are you exploring? What are the big changes going to be? Yeah, well, for, for us, I think like a lot of industries, um, analytics has just become a huge driver of, of the work that we do. It's a super in-demand profession. And anyone that's starting is going to want to have a really crack individual and eventually a team that are working in that area in their business. And television is the same. There's so much data available now from viewing um, TVs that have the ability to be connected to like a computer. They're called smart TVs. And a smart TV produces a lot of data we can use to track our campaigns. So that's a big trend and everyone's wanting to quantify their marketing. And so those challenges are out there of how, how can we do that more effectively? I think you're seeing really a resurgence of creative entrepreneurialism and that is this idea that we're constantly able to refine our message based on really reading our audience. So social media has really taught everyone that the more you pay attention to what the dialogue is around your brand, the more you can make an effective message. So that's a big trend to not just sit in a boardroom and decide what are we gonna now broadcast to, to people, but to really be in the field and listening to your consumer. And the question then becomes, how do you do that? And there's really cool tools and platforms to get consumer feedback. And consumers can rest assured that brands are really listening to that right now. So that is a big trend. And TV is fragmenting. People don't want to watch it on the big TV companies' terms. They want to watch it on their terms. So they want it to be on demand. They want to be able to access any content when they want to watch it. And that's all opportunities to deliver advertising in unique and different ways. But it's changing the traditional ways that TV is broadcast. Um, live sports maybe are still an area where there's a lot of people watching live, but um, some some programs have 40 to 50% of the program watched. It's called on a time-shifted basis. So you're seeing a really major shift in a lot of different areas, and it can be a lot to keep up with. What we're excited about is any company that relishes complexity and using technology to solve complex challenges is going to succeed in the television business because it is becoming more complex, but there's always a solution for that complexity, typically through technology. What are the biggest changes that you've seen since you started marketing architects? Because I got to imagine an advertisement 23 years ago looks significantly different than today. 
Well, one thing we're excited about, and I think Jeff Bezos made this really popular, and he said, you know, Amazon's built because we're built around those things that are never going to change. You know, people always want products faster at a lower price, for example. So there are universal truths that have not changed in television. And I think you'd always want to start a company looking for the things that you can build around that are always going to be universal truths. So, for example, how marketing psychology works is the same today as it was 20 or 30 years ago. Consumer influence principles have not changed. Um, and behavioral psychology has only gotten more interesting, not less interesting. So I would say those haven't changed. But boy, how we deliver content and, and, and how the consumer controls when they want to wear and when they want to watch that, it's dramatically different. And then I would say another huge trend that we're seeing that's super exciting is not only did the computer change TV, but the mobile device has changed it again. So now a high percentage of all video content, I guess, as people would know intuitively, is streamed on, on a mobile device. And that's a completely different environment than a large screen TV. And how do you build a message for that environment? So we like to blend the things that we know are never going to change with the areas that are going to change. And that's ultimately a way to build a great strategy for a company. You brought up consumer principles. What are some of those consumer principles? Well, I think um, we're big fans of trying to keep some of that very simple. I think there's still this idea that you buy from people you like. So this principle of liking, that's why you try to make ads relatable, are really important. There's this idea of power and authority. I mean, I think people love to admire people. That's why we like celebrities. Um, and so I think we follow principles like that. There's principles of reciprocity that I think have become heightened in the area of social media, meaning if I'm going to buy from you, you know, what are you doing for me? And people just expect to be engaged if they have a question through Twitter. They expect to be engaged in that format, not just the, the concept of, you know, if you have a question for me, then call my consumer number. Um, you know, the consumer is much more in control than they ever were. And brands that are recognizing that and addressing that are the ones that are growing. I think these next two questions might be a little more applicable to someone, I don't know, more at the start of their business. So the first one I'm going to ask you is, let's say you were going to launch a new product, like in the next three months, for example, what would you do to launch it from a marketing perspective? That's a great question. I think a lot of times investors are looking for you to be able to answer the question, you know, how are you going to grow this company? There's a lot of great business models that we see out there that ultimately fail because there's not some assumption for growth. So I think that's where marketing and sales come in. And I would say first to not lose sight of the power of sales in the marketing equation. I mean, nothing really happens till a product is sold. And so I know even though sales is separate from marketing, I suggest they be set up as separate divisions in a company. They need to collaborate and work really closely together. So you definitely have to have a good sales plan. Now, from a marketing perspective, you can start with some of those overall questions an entrepreneur should have, I just starting with the vision, mission, and values of the company. Um, there's no better place to start a marketing campaign is a, a long sit down with the founder and to really understand what's their story and why did they start this business and what problem does this product or service solve? And so I think some of the best companies to do marketing for our startups and startups themselves should step back and go, well, how are you going to market this product even before it's complete? So, and then from there, you can start to get into some of the more tactical questions of what objectives does our marketing campaign even need to reach? Maybe we're going to be a direct to consumer company. So we need to get people to our website and how are we going to do that? Um, certainly we'll need to build a brand. And so there's a process by which you'd go through to answer that. I think ultimately one of the things that I mentioned earlier that's just essential, and that is just to have clarity of your message. How can you have just even three or four, four words that if you said them, people would know who you were and what you did, you'd become memorable for that. And so having a clear tagline and just a simple way to describe what you do is important. Um, and so those are some of the early building blocks that I think are universal to anyone beginning to market themselves. And I think a lot of our audience can, I mean, they do understand from that perspective of entrepreneurship, how they should be 
how you can kind of market as a startup, really. They can they can relate to that. But I think more of our audience might be able to relate to this idea of actually doing marketing on their own, whether they're doing it within a large corporate setting or they're just joining a smaller company. I mean, you're an expert on marketing. What advice would you actually give to a student of business interested in marketing? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. I like even helping someone think about marketing from the perspective of what's in it for them. I mean, how are you going to market yourself to business if you want to join a company? What is on your LinkedIn profile? How are you communicating your experiences? Are you just saying what you did? Or are you describing what the benefits were to the company you worked for or the internship you had or the summer job that you had? And learning to crystallize your own personal message and communicate that. The ability that I see is lost out there is the ability to write a cover letter that describes your own background. That's a really powerful tool to sit down and be able to say, you know, this is why you should be able to hire me over someone else. Um, that is all goes into the in, into that marketing equation. Um, I think one of the best advices that I've I've seen really work for people is to begin to look beyond your college experience and really figure out who are, what blogs are you going to subscribe to, what podcasts are you going to listen to. Um, you've got an excellent one. Um, subscribe and and listen to this and listen to how people talk about marketing. Um, listen to podcasts about marketing books. Continue to read. Um, one of the ways to reach your goals is to stand on more books. And so marketing today is is so different than what it was 20 years ago when you look at the tactical resources that are available and the platforms that are out there. Yeah, there's some universal truths around psychological principles, but it, there's so many new things and you really can be active not only in marketing yourself, but just paying attention and subscribing and and uh, and, and listening and, and learning. And that's going to go a long ways to making you a more powerful marketer. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you have any favorite marketing books or marketing podcasts that you recommend that we should throw in the show notes? Boy, there are just so many great ones out there. I think Seth Godin is really great. Purple Cow is, should be on everyone's bookshelf. Um, and I think people like that are, are just awesome. There's a podcast out there called The Marketing Book Podcast by Doug Burdett. And he covers a new marketing book every couple of weeks. And that's a way, great way to get exposed to other marketing books. I think once you just get started, um, doors will continue to open. Just like when you listen to your podcast, Bobby, you just interview people that talk about their experiences and you can kind of just peel back the layers of the onion as other people expose you to other layers of marketing. And uh, and then just budget some time every single day for these kinds of activities. I've seen almost zero entrepreneurs that I've met aren't, they're, they're people that are are very involved in active learning and and reading and listening. And there's so many different ways to learn today that you can you can follow. So there really is no reason not to even be driving in your car and listening to an audio book. Or if you're riding your bike, listening to a podcast, um, it could be a, almost any way you can ingest some material, but the, the key is to do it. I have to ask from a selfish perspective, I guess, what is your take on personal branding? And the reason why I'm asking is because I think a lot of Gen Zers and millennials and really just, I see a lot of early founders nowadays, they are building personal brands and marketing from that personal brand. What do you think of those strategies or what do you think of people developing their own brand and doing something with it in the future? Yeah, no, I think there's this old statement that I, I think is some, somewhat funny and that sometimes it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. And I think I say that tongue in cheek because I think if you put yourself out there in a way that's unprofessional, it's better to remain silent. But I think from a business perspective, almost all of us can benefit from working on our personal brand. I wish that would have been available to me back in the day when I, when I launched my business career, when social media wasn't an option. But to be able to, to you know, comment on content and maybe put your own content out there to think about what your profile is going to look like in social media and LinkedIn, even to think about how am I going to show up and what am I going to look like and how am I going to show up and participate in a meeting? I think there's almost an endless number of things that are, are super important. And ultimately, when you think about how teams work together, 
you're only a great team if you've got a diverse group of people that come together to solve problems. Almost no world problems are solved by the only technical experts that are trying to solve that problem. They're almost always solved collaboratively. And the ability to join a team that has a diverse group of people working to solve problems is is just a great way to look at where you should try to land in your first in your first um, job or in your first company. Um, but you're not going to get there unless you have, I think, a really strong personal brand. Because ultimately, people make decisions relatively quickly when they meet somebody. Do they think this person's competent or are they a potential fit for my business? So um, I don't think it's being self-centered to think about yourself and your own personal brand. I think it's just smart and it's helpful and respectful to other people so that they can look at you and figure out, are you a good fit for their business? I always tell people when I'm interviewing, we have more history available to you to learn about us, so please use it. Because not every culture is gonna work for somebody. And to be able to figure out, could I like working at this firm, use what's out there on that firm and learn. It's a lot harder an individual if they haven't published much on themselves or there's not much content out there. It's much more limited to the questions we may ask or the situational things we'll put you through. So I think it's a really good thing when people think about their brand. Gosh, I just don't under, I don't even, I can't even begin to understand how you differentiate yourself from other agencies that are making advertising. Because I just think about myself sitting there and watching the TV. You know, like it's so rare that you have an advertisement pop up that really like turns your brain on, right? With how much content we consume every day. Right. Yeah, we just got lucky. The Video Advertising Bureau, which is the industry trade organization that all the big TV companies have gotten behind to basically continue to market TV as a viable channel. So it's a big, well-known group. Um, they pick two, two advertisers to feature every year as the best examples of how to use TV. And one of the advertisers featured this year you can't even enter this. They review about 350 TV campaigns each year. But one of the advertisers is our advertiser. So it's a great story. And they launched in social media and they became this viral sensation. But eventually you kind of start to you know, maximize how much you can do in any one channel. So then they, they, they kind of plateaued for a year and they're like, well, how are we going to grow our business? They were anti-TV. They're like, we're a digital brand. We've got this great app. We've got 16 million users. You know, we're selling curated men's stuff. You know, our customer isn't watching TV. They had all these negative biases. We're like, well, let us create a campaign for you and we'll show you what we, we can do. And now their business is going to boom. It's going to double this year. They're on this great tear. Um, so, you know, people still utilize video. It's still a gigantic channel. And remember, TV's not just your cable company. It's Hulu. It's all, you know, it's it's pan, it's all of this stuff. So it's it's really fun when you can be a part of a company who had a bias against it. And then you go... And really, I can't sell what we do without a face-to-face. You you really differentiate because you're really hiring a team. And so you need to meet our entire team. Like if you met other people here, Bobby, you'd go, oh, my gosh, do you work at Marketing Architects? They're totally different than me, which I love, right? So like I'm too enthusiastic. I love all ideas. I'm the <laughs> entrepreneur. I love talking to you. I looked at your business. I listened to eight or 10 of your podcasts, consuming your stuff. Like I'm a fan because you're starting, you want, you want to create something. That's a terrible role to play on an account because like I like people start to take ads that I like and do something different because like I'm too enthusiastic. <laughs> you know, you need to get an analyst there and a strong strategic creative. And so that's why people hire us. So they get exposed to all of that. And so it's like starting anything, you know, like, like we have 18 senior executives with an average tenure of over 10 years. That's really rare in advertising. That's awesome. Like, like we like each other. We work together really well. <laughs> That's hard to do because you got crazy people like me. And then I have to, and when I started the creative area, it took me three separate tries to get it. The third time I made it, hired a leader, they failed, hired another leader, they failed. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to give up at this. And I finally hired the right individual, Rob who is the right mix that could work in a professional environment and do it like we wanted to have it done, but is a big strategic thinker. And, and he brought both of that here and finally built a team. Like our head of productions in the Guinness book. He, he's a very famous recording artist, you know? Really? He, he recorded um, Prince's first demo track. No kidding. You know, he's done Bobby, he's, he's famous, but 
we got him out of retirement. Like we were tired of failing in production. Like we were, it was terrible. <laughs> but we got this guy to come out of retirement. Now he's mid sixties. He's been here 12 years. He like loves it. Oh my you know, he was done. He'd been there and done that with all these famous people. He wrote the AT&T jingle. But, you know, that's what's cool about an entrepreneur. If you can get people like that. And he loved it because it was like a whole new career from him. You know, he got out of the music business and doing all that kind of stuff and working with famous people. He's a Grammy winner. And he's, and he, and he's like, wow, I love doing this in advertising where he had done it in music before. And all of a sudden, he brought that professionalism that I never could have figured out. So, boy, it's so hard to build a team, isn't it? I you mean, must have that experience. How do you get a team, you know, to help you grow? And I can't imagine you having that many people in upper management and you guys all staying together that long. Were they all internal individuals? Most are promoted from within. We hired, to, you know, to do a job function and they grew up to become the executive that they are today. Almost all are that way. Gosh, that, so, that must be fun. It, it is. You must be having fun now. Yeah. And to see, we definitely, you know, every year people don't make it, you know, we've got the same 10 or 15% turnover problem that a lot of businesses have, but most of that's our junior people, you know, that start and a couple years later, they figure out, yeah, maybe this is not for me, but it's so critical to, you know, retain your key people. But, you know, you do that through really practical means. You know, you have to challenge them in the right way. They have to love the work they're doing. They have to be rewarded and recognition, recognized in the right way. But if you can get that right blend, they'll, you know, we'll, we'll stay together. You said you freelance a lot of stuff as well, right? We do. Is that all in the U.S. or are you using other countries too? Uh, so, yeah, we've developed some of our IT systems. We had 50 people over in Ukraine working on something. So from a technical perspective, we've been a bit global, but we're, we've been told by the freelance ecosystem in Minneapolis, we're the largest employer of creative freelance talent in the upper Midwest. So we use mainly people from this area. Although wow. if we're going to LA and we need a producer, we'll typically cast a producer for a particular project, you have to get the right match of a producer to a company. So um, there's elements of business today that should be virtualized. And so we, we do as much of that as we can. And so creative is an area you can do quite a bit. We have our key people here, but we, we, we hire a lot of freelance creative in that area. We use a lot of freelance creative in, in technical roles like technology. Um, but but uh, yeah, and it's we're really proud of that. That's you know, sweet. An ecosystem of people that love working with you is, uh, you know, is, is, is uh, you know, we're really proud of that. Those outside people that still look at us as a, a key client and, and do their best work for us. Awesome. Do you know who Tim Ferriss is? Do you of follow course. him? Or? Of course. Just an yeah, absolute yeah. beast. So we knew Tim before he was Tim. You know, he was in our industry. And so Marketing Architects is in his first book, The 4-Hour Workweek. Oh, I've, so, I've seen it in that. Yeah, you'll you'll if you Google us, we show up in there. He just mentions this us as a place that an entrepreneur can go to launch their company. That's when we were doing a lot more radio, and uh, and so we knew Tim back in the day. But remember, Tim kind of he's like you. He was always looking to change the, the the game a little bit from being a product marketer, and you know, and he started doing content, and then all of a sudden you have that piece of content that hits, you know. So just keep doing what you're doing, Bobby. That like. That guy's you know, crazy. You'll, you'll find it. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be my segment, but you'll find that thing. You go, oh, that's my pivot. That's my thing. You know, keep you know, your personal brand. Keep working on that. Maybe, you know, don't be afraid maybe to try a little bit of design. You know, do I have a little bit of a, you know, there's those podcasters that have found, you know, maybe I bring stick figures in, you know, mm. you keep experimenting with your content and how do I position it? And you're now, I think, the 38 or 39 episodes. So. You know, and so you just have to get started. And, and, you know, Fair started the same way, you know, 100 listeners. And he went from there. I forget what he credits his breakthrough. But, but yeah, we knew him back in the day. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, so we actually said no to working with him. You know, we, we thought, and he appreciated that, you know, the recommendation from what he wanted to do. We weren't really a good fit. And he always remembered that. We had multiple conversations and, and so like we become really well known for like what we're not willing to do. Like we don't do every other channel, like other agencies. I'm not going to constantly tell you I'm great at this or that. 
And if someone comes to us and I think you're a little early or not the right fit, people, I don't want to take your money if I don't think it's going to get you a return. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's how we met Ferris. And then, you know, he kind of mentioned this in his book and we run in some of the same circles. Cool. I have two more marketing questions for you before we jump into our quick fire and start to wrap this thing up. Uh, the first one is, what what's one thing you think a whole bunch of marketers do wrong? I'm passionate about this one. I think they need to think of marketing as a function of everyone's job at a company. So it when you think about it, it starts to make sense. So it's my job's a lot easier if the product team is building a product that has differentiated value built into that product. So I have an easier time communicating an advantage. It's better for me if I've got a price that I've set for my product that's most competitive so that when I'm out there marketing that product, I can sell to the most amount of people and offer the best value. So marketing today has really become a cross-functional discipline and to find a way to make sure everyone in a company has at least some understanding of marketing and, and, and recognizing where they can fit in to contribute to that function is just critical for success. Do you market it? I don't really know how to phrase this in a way where it doesn't make you sound like you're marketing in some horrible way, but do you market in a way for all of your brands that's just 100% truthful with customers or is it important to sometimes put a spin on that truth? Not not lie, but add like a creative strategy to it. You know, all of us talk about in school how people will get mad at companies like McDonald's who video their burgers in a special way and put so much money into that burger when it's not exactly what's there in the store. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's a really great topic right now. There's so much transparency the consumer can figure out quickly that marketing that isn't up and up with consumers is is quickly figured out as inauthentic and can destroy a business. And at the same time, sometimes marketing can make claims they can't substantiate and other things that is just highly advised not to do. Not only is it the wrong thing to do, but you're going to be called out in the marketplace. So we will not work with clients that have marketing equations that incorporate things like unsubstantiated claims. But on the flip side, where can marketing really make a difference? Well, it was figured out in politics years ago that just a single word can make a huge difference. So, for example, people are not they're they're for a wealth tax, but they're against a death tax. And they're really the same thing. It's just how do you describe the tax. And that's where marketers can really bring their talents to the table to say, let's describe our product in the best possible way we can and use the right words. Um, and, and the right word can make a gigantic difference to performance. Is half off better or is buy one, get one free better? Well, the BOGO almost always wins. And marketers that know that typically would use a BOGO. So marketing is still a discipline and the discipline still requires creative communication and creative communication. There's a lot of room to add value. Um, And I'll go one step further. I think what's cool to me about marketing is that if it's done well, it makes people like products more. It actually makes people feel this product is more valuable to me. And it's done that in a way that hasn't used more natural resources. It hasn't dug more coal and built, burn more electricity to build, you know, melt more steel or to put more into the product. Sometimes we're just adding value through just positioning. Nike is a great example of that. So I think marketing done well is a noble discipline. It allows us to figure out um, why we like one product versus another. It allows us to follow a brand that admires. It allows us to put on clothes in the morning we feel really good in. A lot of that can be attributed to marketing. So I think people should look at marketing as a really powerful thing that adds value and don't use it as a tool to fool the consumer or trick the consumer because that almost never is going to work today. I love that answer. That answer was spot on. I'm so happy you answered it that way. So 
We'll probably start going into the quick fire questions, but they're never usually quick fire. So that's why we'll run into them now. We have one random question that we ask our guests every week. And the question I kind of have for you this week is what makes fishing one of your favorite hobbies? And off of that, I'd love it if you'd answer why you believe hobbies are so important to building a successful career. What does it do for you? Thank you for asking that question because it was an area that I I really needed the advice at the time to become a fisherman. I grew up fishing, but not seriously. But it was my executive coach that recommended I get a stronger hobby outside of work. And his thought was I was bringing too much energy to my role as a business leader, and I should try to leave some of that outside of work. So it was a planful process. We looked at a whole variety of hobbies. And ultimately, we chose fishing because I could do what's called bass tournaments. You could fish competitively. And so I really got into fishing on a real planful basis, and I put a lot of time and energy into that. And boy, is it good for me to spend an entire day on the water, no radio, no cell phone, all alone. I have a very extroverted kind of role dealing with people and dynamic clients all day long. And I just get away and I relax and I, and I, I put a lot of time into that sport. But it was actually as, as, at, at, at the behest of my, my coach at the time. And it's turned out to be a really good thing for me. And I really recommend everyone to have that kind of passion outside of work. So you have some balance. You will be a better leader. You'll be more effective if you do. I don't think I've ever heard someone say that they've had too much energy. What, what does that even mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it can mean really practical things where am I too willing to jump in and do work that I don't have any business doing where maybe somebody else owns that? It can mean that sometimes you can bring too much energy to a, a presentation where, where, where it's called for a more planful or a quieter approach. So it shows up in, in a lot of different ways. I think I'm just really passionate about the work we do here and the people we have here, and I want the best for um, everybody here and the best for the business. And so that does require a lot of energy, but there there can be too much energy brought to that. So having a little bit of balance is a good thing. That's awesome. I I really like that. The second quick fire question we have and questions here, two through four of our quick fire section of the show, they're all about pretty much mastering the start of your career. So this first one is what skills does a young professional need to have straight out of college? Well, I think it's great if you really apply yourself to a major. I think a minor is a really good idea. I I look at the skills. Certainly there's those deep technical skills that you're going to get in your particular field of study. But to have as much broad-based experience as you can is super important. So what on-the-job work experience can you get through internships? Can you find a way to have a mentor that starts to help you use your advisor in college as much broad-based business, sorry, as much broad-based educational experience, I think is really essential to get off and running in your career early on. So you brought up, yeah, just all of that experience. So you believe it doesn't matter exactly where that experience is, just gathering a bunch of experience in general in the business world will be helpful? Yeah, I really think so. I mean, we all know what Steve Jobs said, that Mac would have never been invented if he hadn't dropped out of school and took a course on design. And at the time that wasn't done in computing. So he brought design to computing. So we all can see it in famous examples, but why can't that apply to everyone that's leaving school? Have those other very different experiences that give you a perspective that's different than the perspective you and you're learning in your specific course of study. I think it's just essential and make sure it's dramatic kinds of things. Maybe it's through hobbies, maybe it's through travel, but have those life ex- experiences. You will find places to use that. I love that answer. I, I really, really love that answer because I, I would say something that really bothers me more than anything is people either going down a career path that they don't truly love, that they're not truly passionate about. The other thing that really bothers me are the people that are 20 or 30 years into their career and still haven't tried to explore something they love. And I believe all of that comes through experiences. Yeah. And along with that, everyone should recognize you have time to be successful when you're early in your career. It's okay to have a failure in there. I would say 
what defines companies isn't how they handle their success. It's how they handle their failures. And as people, if we all think back, it's those failures that we overcome that ultimately are those life forming experiences. So it's okay to have a job that you don't succeed at and move on to the next one or to have things that become experiences aren't always positive that you're going to learn as much or even more from those things and give yourself some time. Be, be kind to yourself to say, all right, you know, I was three or four years out of school and I was in far more debt than when I left. I had a lot of student loan debt and then I had a business that failed. So I maxed out credit cards and I had to move home and live in my parents' basement. I didn't have the money to pay the rent and that was painful. But boy, did that create clarity in what I was going to go after next. And I used that as a motivator to go fix the problems that I had created. But those experiences became invaluable. And we've got a very astute way to manage our business financially. But that wasn't built just from running this company. That was built from the prior failures. So that's what I think a young professional needs. You have to have not only the things you've learned, but go out and try some things and fail. That's all going to serve you extremely well. And then be nice to yourself. You have time. You don't have to become super successful in your 20s. You have time to get there. So awesome. <laughs> the third question I have here for Quickfire is, what do you believe needs to be sacrificed for success? Boy, that's a deeply personal question. I think ideally it would be nothing. If, if you're really doing what you love, are you really sacrificing anything? Um, I think practically you have to decide, well, what kind of role do I want? One, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, your social schedule is going to take a hit. You're going to probably be working late night and weekends. So I think that question really gets down to what track do you want to be on and what kind of activities you want to be involved in. I never really thought of being an entrepreneur in the very, very long hours I put into that as a sacrifice because I enjoyed the building process. But if you don't enjoy the building process, starting a company is probably not right for you because you're going to feel like there's going to be more sacrifice than to someone who loves that process, who doesn't feel that way. So true. So true. Last question here for you, Chuck. What is one life hack a student of business should apply to their life this week? Clean up your mess. Delete files you no longer need. Clean your closet. There's a Zen principle that says the cleaner life you have, the more that the opportunities that are big out there that aren't finding you, will find you. So have a stop doing list. What am I involved in that I shouldn't be? Create space. And that space will open up opportunities you wouldn't have seen if you're living a life of clutter. So clean up. That was an unexpected answer. We have not had a guest that even went down that route at all. So I really like that one. Yeah, we close our office one day each quarter just for corporate cleanup. And boy, do we have fun. <laughs> and and uh, and you start fresh, and it's amazing how good you can feel. That's really awesome. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Do you have any calls to action at the end here? Do you have anything you want people to connect anyway? Any books they should look at? I mean, you already said it earlier in the show, and we'll put it in the show notes. Any parting words? You know, Bobby, I would say one is just continue to listen to your podcast. You're an example of someone that covers a lot of topics. It's that divergent thinking we've talked about. Um, so, you know, keep learning, keep growing. You'll eventually reach your goals, but you're not going to get there if you don't keep growing. And I think these kind of formats are awesome for that. Awesome. Well, thank you. I, you're too kind for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> we thank you for being on the show. Great. Great to be with you today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode 41 of Master the Start podcast, sponsored by GoMahi.com and with your host, Bobby Mason. Before we go, here's a few key takeaways from this week. Develop a strong personal brand. Describe clearly what you do in three to four words, and you'll have the foundation to marketing yourself. A strong cover letter is a powerful tool that informs your client or employer in which unique ways you add value to a project. Don't be afraid to broaden your areas of interest. Find mentors, internships, or any way to interface with subjects outside of your expertise. These cross-disciplines will expand what you thought possible in your main area of focus. And the life hack for this week is clean up your mess. 
create a tidy space that is ready to receive the opportunities you want to invite into your life.